I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Okay, we're all set. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How are you today? 
Well, I'm really hoping my audio is better. I'm optimistic. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'm glad to hear that. Same. I'm a little bit tired, though, because full disclosure, I was wrapping up the Hamlet synopsis because, ooh, I just gave a spoiler. Well, I guess if you looked at the episode, you know what we're talking about. You looked at the title of the episode. <laughs> we are starting a brand new play, a whole new series. We have chosen to focus on one of the heavy hitters in Shakespeare's canon, and that is Hamlet. Hamlet. Mm-hmm. We do want to disclose some information about the synopsis before we provide the two-hour bit of audio that you will be listening to. Elise, what do you want to say about this synopsis? Well, I want to just acknowledge that for fans of Hamlet out there, or anyone who's, you know, heard of Hamlet, they may be expecting some speeches, some mm -hmm. beautiful pieces of language. And, you know, in a summary, it's really hard to dive into those beautiful language passages, because sometimes when you go to unpack them, they are actually really about a simple theme. Yeah. And for a summary, you got to stick to the theme. Exactly. The bare bones plot points, what is going on and what's being said. So that's my way of saying, folks, you may go, where is to be or not to be in this? Or where is what piece of work is a man in this? And, you know, we might get into that later in this yeah. series. But today, you know what you're going to walk away with? A fine understanding of the geopolitical underpinnings that are usually cut from Hamlet. That's right, baby. That's right. Oh, boy, do we have that, that for you today. So why don't we just jump right on in? Because this play is in its entirety when it's not cut by theater companies and screenwriters and directors. It totals to what, five hours? Yeah, I've actually sat in a table read of this script. That seems so long. And it seems like, well, that's not possible. It can't actually be five hours long. But just to sit and read this play aloud, uncut, took exactly five hours. And uh, another reason why we have a lot of the intricacies of the language cut from our synopsis is because it is an uncut gem. We want to give you what's happening. And we don't want you sitting here for five hours just to understand Hamlet. Yeah. With that said, shall we dive in? Let's do it. The play begins with one guard, Bernardo, relieving another guard, Francisco, at midnight from the cold, dark night watch. Francisco updates Barnardo on the quietness of the night. Barnardo then asks Francisco that, if he sees Horatio and Marcellus, his two partners on the watch, to send them over quickly. Just then, Horatio, Hamlet's friend and a fellow student, and Marcellus, another guard, enter. The watch relieved, Francisco exits. Horatio then gets down to business. He asks Bernardo if this thing has happened again tonight. Bernardo says he has seen nothing. Marcellus shares that Horatio thinks this thing is in their imagination, even though they have both seen it, twice. So, Marcellus has invited Horatio in the hopes Horatio will see the apparition and speak to it. Horatio says he would like to hear Bernardo's experience. Bernardo begins his story when, just in time, a ghost enters. They all shut up and observe the ghost who, we learn, looks like the dead king of Denmark. Marcellus logics that, 
because Horatio is an educated man, he should go speak to it. Horatio admits the ghost does look like the king, which fills him with fear and wonder. Barnardo and Marcellus then persuade Horatio to speak to it. So Horatio speaks to it. Horatio asks the ghost to explain what he is. The ghost does not answer and, instead, exits. Horatio, who beforehand didn't believe the tale, believes what he just saw. We learn that the ghost's armor is the same that the dead king wore when Denmark fought Poland and negotiated with the Polish people. Marcellus reminds us that the ghost has appeared to them three times. Horatio admits he doesn't know what to do about this situation, but it is a disturbance. Again, Marcellus wants to know why the ghost appears nightly in military apparel. Horatio then provides some Danish military exposition. Fortinbras, the king of Norway, dared to combat King Hamlet. In this combat, King Hamlet killed Fortinbras and, by sworn and legal agreement, King Hamlet inherited all of Fortinbras's legal possessions, like land and estates. Now, Fortinbras's son, referred to as Young Fortinbras, has gathered men to take back his father's land for Norway. This political turmoil is the reason for the watch and for the disturbance in Denmark. The ghost re-enters. Horatio attempts to cross the ghost's path and get it to speak to him. Horatio wants to know if anything can be done to ease him. If he knows about the country's fate, or if something from his life keeps his spirit walking in death, he wants the ghost to speak of it. Just then, a rooster crows, and the ghost exits. Horatio and Marcellus discuss how some say that no spirit dares walk during the daytime because the nighttime is their holy time. With the sun rising, Horatio and Marcellus decide the best call of action is to end their watch and tell young Hamlet what they have seen tonight. Horatio thinks that, while the ghost will not speak to them, it will speak to Hamlet. They exit to find Hamlet. Then, a fanfare of trumpets plays to announce the entry of Claudius, king of Denmark, Gertrude, the queen, their counselor, Polonius, his son, Laertes, Hamlet, and Danish ambassadors to Norway, Voltmond and Cornelius. Claudius delivers a speech in which he tells everyone that, although King Hamlet's death is recent, we must think of him, but also remember ourselves. Therefore, he tells everyone, weighing both the joy and the sorrow of the circumstances, a funeral followed by a wedding, Gertrude, Claudius's sister-in-law, will now become his wife. We also learn that young Fortinbras thinks King Hamlet's death made Denmark a weak target for Danish surrender. In response to the threat, Denmark is sending two ambassadors, Cornelius and Voltmond, to deliver business to the bedridden and ill Norway, the uncle of young Fortinbras, requesting Norway suppress his nephew. Voltmond and Cornelius exit. Next, Claudius asks Laertes, Polonius's son, about his formal request. Laertes wishes to return to France now that his duty to attend the coronation is completed. Claudius asks what Polonius, Laertes's father, says about Laertes's departure. Polonius says that, although he doesn't want his son to leave, he asks the king to permit Laertes to leave. Claudius seems to allow it and wishes Laertes to enjoy his remaining time in Denmark as he wishes. After, maybe, or maybe not, dismissing Laertes and or his entire court, 
Claudius addresses his nephew, now stepson, Hamlet. To which Hamlet responds snarkily, a little more than kin and less than kind. Claudius then asks Hamlet why he is still upset. Hamlet implies that he objects to Claudius calling him son. His mother Gertrude then suggests Hamlet be friendly to the king. She advises him no longer be downcast about his father's death, for all that lived must die. She wants to know why this natural part of life seems to be hitting him so hard. To which Hamlet claps back that his father's death is hitting him hard. It's not just superficial appearances. Claudius then lectures Hamlet that, while his mourning is commendable, every son has and will eventually lose their father. To stubbornly continue grieving is unmanly and wrong. It's a fault against heaven, the dead, nature, and reason to continue mourning when it's common for fathers to die. We, the royal we, wish Hamlet to bury his grief and, as the heir to the throne, think of Claudius as his new father. Claudius then recommends that Hamlet not go back to school in Wittenberg and instead stay in Denmark under his and Gertrude's eye. Gertrude reiterates Claudius's wish. Hamlet agrees he will obey her. Claudius is delighted by Hamlet's response and invites him to behave as if he were king. He then requests Gertrude join him so that everyone can drink and party in celebration of Hamlet's agreement to remain in Denmark. He then requests everyone follow him and they exit. Hamlet is now left alone on stage to deliver one of his many infamous soliloquies. Hamlet wonders why he can't dissolve into a dew and die, or why divine law is against suicide. In the soliloquy, Hamlet laments the uselessness of everything in the world. He hates the circumstances of his life. His father, an excellent king and husband, has only been dead for two months or fewer, and now his mother hangs on his uncle-father as if she can't get enough of him. Hamlet is upset that his mother recovered from his father's death so quickly and remarried. Not only that, she remarried his lesser brother. Hamlet is heartbroken, but must remain quiet. Just then, Horatio, Marcellus, and Bernardo enter. Hamlet recognizes his friend Horatio. Horatio plays his importance down and says he is Hamlet's poor servant, to which Hamlet reassures Horatio that they are friends. Hamlet asks Horatio why he is in Denmark and not Wittenberg. Horatio explains the reason is not important. Hamlet doesn't believe Horatio and, again, wants to know why he is in Elsinore. Horatio responds that he came to see King Hamlet's funeral. Hamlet believes Horatio is in town for his mother's wedding. Horatio admits that both events did happen close together. Hamlet expresses frustrations with the timing and shares that he thinks he's seen his father in his mind. Horatio shares that he saw Hamlet's father yesternight. Horatio then shares the story of Marcellus's, Barnardo's, and his night watches. Hamlet decides he will join the night watch and, if it is his father, he will speak to it. Horatio, Marcellus, and Barnardo exit. Hamlet is shocked by the story of his father's spirit in armor. He thinks something is wrong and suspects foul play. But while Hamlet is impatient for the night, he will wait. He thinks that whatever has happened will reveal itself, even though some people try to bury the truth. Hamlet exits. Laertes and his sister Ophelia enter. Laertes tells her that his luggage is on board, so he begins his farewell. He asks Ophelia to write to him. Ophelia asks if he doubts she will. 
Laertes doesn't answer Ophelia's question, but instead warns her to think of Hamlet's attention to her as a passing fancy, no more. He gives Hamlet the benefit of the doubt and explains Hamlet might love her now, but he will be king one day and he might have to marry someone else. If Hamlet tells her that he loves her, she must err on the side of caution in every respect. Ophelia replies that she will remember his lesson. She then warns Laertes to practice what he preaches. Just then, their father, Polonius, enters. Polonius chides Laertes because the ship is waiting on him. But since Laertes is already in front of him, Polonius indulges Laertes in some fatherly advice, some useful, some silly, and some contradictory. But the most famous from this speech is, This above all, to thine own self be true. Father and son say their last farewell. Laertes then says farewell to Ophelia and reminds her to remember what he has said to her. Laertes exits. Polonius then prods and asks Ophelia what Laertes was referring to. She says, rather vaguely, it was regarding Lord Hamlet. Polonius then admits he has heard gossip about Hamlet and Ophelia spending private time together. If Ophelia cares about her reputation, Polonius asks that she will explain what is going on and be truthful. Ophelia shares that Hamlet has recently been offering her his affections. Polonius chastises her naivete and asks if she believes Hamlet. Ophelia explains she isn't sure what she should think of the situation. Polonius then says he will teach her. She just has to think of herself as a baby who has misread Hamlet's intentions. Instead, she must take better care of herself or she'll make her father look like a fool. Ophelia shares that Hamlet has persistently expressed his love in an honorable fashion. Polonius mocks her, so she continues that Hamlet has supported his speech with holy vows of heaven. Polonius counters that his vows are a trap. Polonius goes on to explain that, when sexual desire is aroused, the tongue will make promises that cannot be kept. He says that, from this moment on, Ophelia must spend less time with Hamlet and set her expectations higher. Polonius then warns that this is the first and the last time that he will give her this piece of advice. Ophelia must not write or talk to Hamlet anymore. Ophelia says she will obey. They exit. Hamlet, Horatio, and Marcellus enter. They are waiting for the midnight hour in order to see the spirit again. A flourish of trumpets and two pieces of artillery go off. Hamlet explains that Claudius is staying up late tonight to drink, party, and celebrate the success of his promise, although the content of the promise is unclear. We learn that Hamlet disapproves of the custom of drunken revelry because it makes the Danish look like drunkards to other nations and usurps Danish achievements. In the middle of Hamlet's rant about drunk Danes, the ghost enters. Hamlet is in shock. He asks if the ghost is a spirit from heaven with charitable intentions, or a demon from hell with wicked intentions. Hamlet tells the ghost that, due to their appearance, he will call the ghost Hamlet, King, Father, and Royal Dane. Hamlet then gets to the matter at hand. He asks the ghost why he has been cast up from his resting place, and what should he, Hamlet, do. The ghost beckons Hamlet to come away with him, as if he needs to speak with Hamlet alone. Marcellus and Horatio advise Hamlet not to go with the ghost, but Hamlet decides that if the ghost will not speak, Hamlet will follow. 
Marcellus and Horatio restrain Hamlet, but Hamlet threatens to make a ghost of whoever tries to stop him. So they release him. The ghost and Hamlet exit. Horatio comments that Hamlet grows desperate. Due to this, Marcellus advises they should not listen to Hamlet and instead follow him. Horatio agrees and then wonders aloud what will be the outcome of this event, to which Marcellus says that famous line, something is rotten in the state or kingdom of Denmark. They exit to follow the ghost and Hamlet. The ghost and Hamlet re-enter on presumably another part of the platform. Hamlet asks the ghost where he will lead him and then asserts that the ghost speaks or he, Hamlet, will go no further. So the ghost tells him to pay attention. The ghost's time is almost up and he must share his story. The ghost shares that he is Hamlet's father's spirit and that Hamlet is to avenge him for his father's most foul and unnatural murder. So, what had happened was, King Hamlet was sleeping in his orchard when his brother, the new king, killed him by way of poison in the ear. And while the ghost wants Hamlet to avenge him against his uncle father, the ghost is quite clear. While Hamlet's mother did marry his murderer, Hamlet is to leave her out of it and allow her to go to heaven. Then the ghost says goodbye and exits. Hamlet, alone on stage, is quite distraught. He wants to remember the ghost and the ghost's tale. He desires to wipe away every other memory from his mind aside from the ghost's commandment. After this proclamation, he curses his mother and calls her a villain. Afterwards, he declares, regarding his uncle, he will keep his word. Just then, Marcellus and Horatio call to Hamlet from offstage. Hamlet invites the two of them to enter. So they do. Marcellus and Horatio ask Hamlet for an update. However, Hamlet refuses to share with them because he's afraid they will reveal the information to others. The two refute that claim. As a diversion, Hamlet decides to share something unrelated to the ghost's purpose. Hamlet shares that the ghost said there are no villains in Denmark that are not rascals. Horatio responds that the ghost didn't need to rise from the grave to tell them that. Hamlet then decides it's time to part ways. Horatio is bewildered by this, and Hamlet apologizes for offending him. In addition, Hamlet requests Marcellus and Horatio practice discretion. They swear on Hamlet's sword. Hamlet then shares with Horatio that he, Horatio, might notice Hamlet putting on an antic disposition or generally being weird. If Horatio notices that, he should act as if he knows nothing of Hamlet's state of mind. They swear on it and exit. Next, and presumably some stretch of time after the previous scene, Polonius enters with his servant, Rinaldo. Polonius instructs Rinaldo to go to France, where Laertes has already been for some time, and find out information on what Laertes is doing and who he is hanging out with. Polonius instructs Rinaldo to not say that he works for Polonius, but instead to say that he knows of the family. He tells Rinaldo to find out what other Danish people are in France right now, and to feel free to spread some lies about Laertes among the other Danish expats. Polonius instructs Rinaldo to say things like, he's heard Laertes is in defensing and gambling and other such things that young men are into, like going to brothels, but to steer clear of any rumors that would actually harm Laertes' reputation. Reynaldo asks why Polonius is asking him to do such a thing, 
and Polonius responds that he hopes that someone Reynaldo talks with will be prompted by these little lies to actually confirm the truth of what Laertes is up to in France. Reynaldo exits to go to France, and Ophelia enters distraught. Polonius asks her what is the matter, and she explains that, while she was sewing in her private chamber, Hamlet showed up in a state of disheveled dress, and looking as though he had seen a ghost. Polonius asks if this is just Hamlet being crazy in love for Ophelia, and she says she doesn't know, but fears it. Ophelia then describes that Hamlet said nothing. He just took her by the wrist, then stepped back about an arm's length, and stared at her face for a long time. Finally, Hamlet shook her arm a little, nodded three times, and sighed the most deep and meaningful sigh. Then, Hamlet let her go and walked away, looking back over his shoulder at her until they could no longer see each other. Polonius responds that this is definitely evidence of Hamlet's love for her, and that they should go to King Claudius together. He apologizes for not believing her earlier and asks if she has had any arguments with Hamlet lately. She says she has just been doing as she was commanded, returning Hamlet's letters and denying him access to her. Polonius declares that these actions are what have made Hamlet act this way. He again apologizes for not believing Ophelia and explains that earlier he was fearful that Hamlet was just playing with Ophelia's affections and meant only to seduce her. Polonius urges Ophelia to go with him to reveal this love to Claudius, as it might cause more pain to continue to hide it than the trouble revealing it will cause. Shortly after, we see Claudius and Gertrude welcoming Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to Denmark. Claudius reveals that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have heard of the change that has come over Hamlet. Claudius says that there has been both an internal and external change to Hamlet, and Hamlet no longer resembles who he once was. Claudius says that he can only imagine that this is purely due to Hamlet's father's death. Claudius asks Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who are Hamlet's childhood friends, to stay in Elsinore for a while, keep Hamlet company, and encourage him to have a little fun and try to see if they can figure out what is bothering Hamlet. Gertrude shares Claudius's confidence that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Hamlet's best friends, and promises them that if they help shed light onto what has come over Hamlet, they will be handsomely rewarded. Rosencrantz notes that Claudius and Gertrude could ask them to do much worse, and Guildenstern says that the two will obey Claudius and Gertrude and serve their intents and commands. Gertrude instructs the two to go instantly to visit Hamlet. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern exit. Polonius then enters with news that the ambassadors to Norway have returned and that he, Polonius, believes he has found the root cause of Hamlet's erratic behavior. Claudius is eager to hear the latter. However, Polonius encourages Claudius to see the ambassadors first, and Polonius's discovery can be the cherry on top of what the ambassadors have to say. Gertrude doubts that there is any reason for Hamlet's behavior beyond his father's death and Gertrude and Claudius's marriage. The ambassadors to Norway, Voltmond and Cornelius, enter. Claudius asks Voltmond for news from the king of Norway. Voltmond says that the king of Norway reciprocates Claudius's desires to suppress young Fortinbras. After their first meeting with the king of Norway, Norway tried to suppress the forces levied by Fortinbras, which the king of Norway originally thought were raised in preparation against Poland. When it was looked into further, the king of Norway discovered that indeed, Fortinbras was raising forces against Claudius. The king of Norway was upset that his illness and advanced age had been taken advantage of by his nephew, so he ordered Fortinbras to stop. Fortinbras obeyed and was further rebuked by Norway and vowed to stop 
and never again try to wage war against Claudius. Norway was overjoyed by this and gave Fortinbras a huge raise to his annual income, then told Fortinbras to take the forces he had raised and direct them to attack Poland. Norway has sent a request to Claudius that Fortinbras be able to peacefully pass through Denmark on his way to Poland. Claudius is pleased and will read the king of Norway's request and answer it later. He thanks Voltimand and Cornelius and welcomes them back home. The ambassadors exit, and now it is time for Polonius to start talking about his discovery of the root of Hamlet's madness. As always, Polonius takes his time getting to the point, even after Gertrude implores him to stop being so extra. Polonius reveals that Ophelia has given him a letter, and Polonius starts to read it. Gertrude asks if the letter is from Hamlet. Polonius says that he will reveal all in good time. Polonius continues reading the letter, which contains poetry about how true the writer's love is. Finally, it is revealed that the letter is written to Ophelia from Hamlet. Polonius shares that Ophelia obediently showed him this letter and told him about every solicitation Hamlet made to her. Claudius asks how Ophelia received Hamlet's solicitations of love. Polonius takes credit for noticing how quickly and impetuously this love developed. He reveals that he told Ophelia that Hamlet was out of her league and instructed her to play hard to get. This, Polonius argued, has made Hamlet lovesick, which is the cause of his current behavior. Claudius asks Gertrude if she thinks this is the case, and she agrees that it is possible. Polonius asks if he has ever been proved to be wrong, and Claudius says that he doesn't know of a single time. Polonius swears his conjecture to be true, and Claudius asks if there is a way to test it. Polonius devises a test for Hamlet. Since Hamlet is known to walk around the chamber they are in for several hours at a time, Polonius will let Ophelia encounter Hamlet during one of those walks, while Polonius and Claudius are hidden behind a wall tapestry. If they do not see proof of Hamlet's love as the cause of his madness, then, Polonius says, he will give up his political career and be a farmer. Claudius agrees to try it. Just then, Hamlet enters, reading. Polonius urges Claudius and Gertrude to leave so he can address Hamlet alone. They do, and Polonius starts by asking Hamlet how he's doing and if Hamlet recognizes Polonius. Hamlet, presumably affecting his antic disposition, and Polonius have a conversation in which Hamlet calls Polonius a fishmonger, or perhaps a pimp, and asks about the existence of Polonius' daughter. Polonius is further convinced that Hamlet is mad with love. Polonius asks what Hamlet is reading, and Hamlet says it is a satire about aging. Polonius notes that though Hamlet is speaking nonsense, there is logic behind it, and he asks Hamlet to come inside. Hamlet responds that he will go into his grave. Polonius again remarks on how logical these mad replies are, and then decides to leave Hamlet alone. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern enter, and Polonius points out Hamlet to them, then exits. Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, and Hamlet joke around, and Hamlet appears to have dropped his antic disposition in front of them. Hamlet asks why they've come to Elsinore. They say they only came to visit Hamlet. Hamlet questions them further. Did they come on their own, or were they sent for? He asks them to be honest with him. Guildenstern deflects, and Hamlet sarcastically reveals that he knows Claudius and Gertrude sent for them. Hamlet implores them again to admit they were sent for, and eventually they admit they were, but do not admit to why. 
Hamlet says he knows why, and will admit to it, so that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern can still tell Claudius and Gertrude that they kept their purpose secret. He reveals that he has recently become depressed and has stopped enjoying past interests. Indeed, he takes no pleasure in humanity at all. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern laugh at this and say that they aren't laughing at Hamlet's misery, but at the idea that if he delights not in mankind at all, what will Hamlet's response be to a play? For you see, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern encountered a troop of traveling actors on their way to Elsinore who are coming to perform for the court. Hamlet says that they will be welcome and have their performance interrupted. The three discuss that these actors typically perform in the city. Which city? Who knows? Due to apparently no longer attracting the same audience numbers in the city as they once did, they are now choosing to tour to Denmark and Elsinore. Hamlet notes that audiences are as fickle in their allegiances as the people of Denmark, presumably because the people of Denmark have supported Claudius as much as they supported Hamlet's father. A sound of horns indicates the offstage arrival of the acting troupe, also called the Players. Hamlet takes his friends' hands and officially welcomes them to Denmark. He reveals to them that his uncle and mother are deceived, and that he is only ever so slightly not sane. Polonius enters, and Hamlet bets his friends that Polonius has come to inform Hamlet of the arrival of the players. Hamlet pokes fun at Polonius until the players arrive. Hamlet welcomes them to Denmark, and is familiar with members of the acting company. Hamlet asks the players to perform a passionate speech, one from a play he's previously seen them perform. He specifically recalls that while the play itself was received with mixed reviews, this one's speech was incredible. The first player, also called the player king because he will later play the role of king in the play, is not sure which play Hamlet means, so Hamlet begins to quote the speech from memory. Eventually, he cues the first player to continue the speech. Polonius cuts off the impromptu performance, and Hamlet orders Polonius to make sure the actors are accommodated within Elsinore and receive similar accommodations to Polonius. As the actors and Polonius start to leave, Hamlet pulls the first player aside to ask if the troupe can perform a play entitled The Murder of Gonzago. The first player says yes, and Hamlet replies that this will be the play that should be performed tomorrow night. Hamlet also asks if it is possible for the actors to memorize a short speech that he will write to be inserted into the play. The first player says that they can do this. Hamlet excuses them to follow Polonius and says that he will leave them alone until later that night. Polonius and the players exit. Hamlet is left alone on stage to remark at how incredible he finds it that the player could act so well. This actor could summon up tears for a pretend other character. He muses, what could this actor do if the actor was feeling what Hamlet feels? He conjectures that the actor would drown the stage with tears and astound the senses. In comparison, Hamlet says he is poor in spirits and lacks action. He can't even do it for his father. Hamlet asks if he is a coward and says that if anyone tried to start a fight with him, he would take it. Hamlet lacks the bile that causes anger. If Hamlet had anger... Anyone who tried to start a fight would be vulture food. Hamlet sarcastically says that he is brave for being the son of a murdered king who has been prompted to revenge, but instead needs to unpack his feelings. He urges his brain to work and starts to develop his plan. He recalls that guilty people watching a play have been so moved by actions on stage that they confess their crimes. 
he decides that he will have the actors perform something similar to the murder of his father by Claudius, and that during the play, Hamlet will observe Claudius's reactions and probe him further. If Claudius flinches or turns pale, Hamlet will take that as proof and continue on his path of revenge. He notes that the ghost of his father that he saw could have been a devil, as the devil has the power to appear in a form we desire. As this could all be a trick of the devil as a way to try and damn Hamlet to hell, he needs more proof of Claudius's guilt before he acts. Therefore, the play will be the means by which Hamlet will determine whether Claudius is guilty or no. Claudius, Gertrude, Polonius, Ophelia, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, and Lords enter. Claudius asks if Rosencrantz or Guildenstern have figured out why Hamlet assumes his mental perturbation. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern share that Hamlet confessed he felt distressed, but didn't say why. But they think Hamlet might be disguising his true state with his quote-unquote madness. Rosencrantz then tells Gertrude that actors have arrived, and that sparked joy in Hamlet. The actors have already been ordered to perform a play tonight. Polonius corroborates the news and extends Hamlet's invitation that Gertrude and Claudius attend. Claudius is happy to hear that Hamlet is excited, and he encourages Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to encourage Hamlet to take pleasure in what pleases Hamlet. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern exit. Claudius then asks Gertrude to leave Polonius, Ophelia, and himself alone. They have sent for Hamlet so that, as if by accident, Hamlet will encounter Ophelia. The plan is that Claudius and Polonius will hide so that they can spy on the encounter and determine whether or not Hamlet's love for Ophelia is the cause of his suffering. Gertrude agrees to the plan. Gertrude then tells Ophelia that she wishes Ophelia's beauty is what is the cause of Hamlet's wildness, and that she hopes Ophelia's virtues will bring Hamlet back to his normal self. Ophelia agrees. Gertrude exits. Polonius guides Ophelia to her mark and then directs her to read a book. Polonius then references the Bible, to which Claudius outwardly agrees. But then Claudius says in an aside that the speech has tugged at his conscience. This is Claudius's first direct confession of guilt to the audience. Polonius hears Hamlet coming, so he suggests he and Claudius hide. They hide. Hamlet enters and begins perhaps Shakespeare's most famous soliloquy in the canon. To be or not to be, that is the question. In this speech, Hamlet toils over whether it's nobler to suffer through all of life's bad luck and choose to continue living, or to oppose all of the bad and end it, implying by suicide. Hamlet posits that death is just a long sleep in which one might actually be able to dream. But then Hamlet stops and reconsiders what those dreams might look like on the opposite side of life. He says that uncertainty might make one hesitate with death. But then he goes back and considers all of the tragedy that occurs in a long life. He wonders why someone would live through all of the setbacks when they could pay their debt with a dagger. He realizes the reason one would take on the burdens of a weary life over death is the dread of what happens afterwards, for no one has died in return to tell the tale. Hamlet concludes that having a conscience makes mankind cowards who lose the ability to act for themselves. At the end of his speech, Hamlet notices Ophelia and greets her. Ophelia implies it's been a few days since they last spoke. Ophelia tries to return some gifts to Hamlet, and Hamlet denies giving her those items. Ophelia counters Hamlet and adds that his sweet words made them sweeter. However, now that his sweetness is gone, 
Hamlet should take them back. Hamlet then questions Ophelia's honesty and ends his interrogation by confessing he loved her once. Ophelia tells Hamlet he certainly made her feel as though he loved her. Hamlet then cruelly contradicts himself and tells Ophelia she never should have believed him because he never loved her. Hamlet then commands Ophelia to go to a convent to protect her reputation. However, if Ophelia must marry, marry a fool, for wise men know that women make men cuckolds. After blaming women generally for man's madness, Hamlet goes on to blame Ophelia directly for making him mad. Hamlet concludes by commanding one final time that Ophelia go to a convent. He exits. Ophelia cannot believe what she's just seen. A previously perfectly fine man, the object of all eyes, the ideal man, is now ruined. On top of Hamlet's fall, she is the most wretched of all women because she believed all of his promises and now sees the results of Hamlet's devastation by madness. She pities herself for what she has seen and what she currently sees. Claudius and Polonius then emerge from behind the curtains. Claudius is shocked that love is not what has made Hamlet mad, and guesses that it must be something deep in his soul that affects his melancholy. Claudius now fears the outcome. Fortunately for us, Claudius has already come up with a plan. To avoid any danger, Hamlet will go to England, because time at sea and in a new country is bound to purge Hamlet of whatever is making him act unusually. Polonius agrees. It's a good plan but he actually thinks neglected love is the origin of Hamlet's grief. Polonius then turns to his daughter and tells her she doesn't have to repeat what Hamlet told her because they heard everything. Polonius then suggests that after the play, Hamlet's mother should speak with him so that he might share his grievance with her. Polonius will be in earshot to overhear the conversation. If Gertrude fails to find out what's wrong with Hamlet, Hamlet should be sent to England or wherever Claudius thinks is best. Claudius agrees. They exit. Claudius and Polonius then emerge from behind the curtains. Claudius is shocked that love is not what has made Hamlet mad, and guesses that it must be something deep in Hamlet's soul that affects his melancholy. Claudius now fears the outcome. Fortunately for us, Claudius has already come up with a plan. To avoid any danger, Hamlet will go to England because time at sea and in a new country is bound to purge Hamlet of whatever is making him act unusually. Polonius, Gilmstern, and Rosencrantz enter. Hamlet greets the three by asking if the king will attend the play. Polonius confirms and adds the queen will attend as well. Hamlet then requests Polonius, Gilmstern, and Rosencrantz help the actors. The three exit. Hamlet enters with three actors. Hamlet demands the actors speak their dialogue as Hamlet had told him, lightly. He continues this self-referential speech by giving the actors more acting advice. Don't speak too loudly, don't gesticulate too much, don't overact a passionate speech, but also don't be too tame, etc., etc. In short, be a good actor. Pro tip, if you know an actor, don't insult them by telling them how to act. Hamlet then dismisses the actors. The actors exit. Musicians with trumpets and kettle drums play to announce the entrance of Claudius, Gertrude, Polonius, Ophelia, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern. Hamlet tells Horatio that everyone is coming for the play, so he must continue his antic disposition, and Horatio must find somewhere to sit. Claudius asks Hamlet how he is doing. Hamlet answers that he is doing excellent and continues to reply in antic disposition. 
Hamlet then asked Polonius if he acted while at university, to which Polonius responded, yes, he played Julius Caesar. A little Easter egg from Shakespeare there. The players are now ready to perform. Gertrude requests Hamlet sit next to her, but Hamlet decides to sit next to Ophelia. Hamlet gets cheeky and asks to lie in Ophelia's lap. She allows it. Just then, Horatio enters at Hamlet's service. Hamlet compliments how ideal his friend Horatio is. Horatio brushes off the compliment, but Hamlet assures him it's not flattery, his feelings are sincere. Hamlet then updates Horatio on the night's events. The actors will perform a play before the king, and the kicker is that one of the scenes will closely resemble what the ghost told Hamlet about his father's death. Hamlet asks Horatio to observe his uncle during that scene. After the scene, Hamlet wants to compare his judgment with Horatio's to deduce what they can from the king's behavior. Horatio agrees to the plan. Another player enters to provide the prologue. They inform the audience that this play is a tragedy and beg for the audience's patience. The king and queen characters re-enter. They have had a conversation about their decades-long marriage, the king's health, and the morality of remarriage. The queen character shares that financial advantage can be the only reason to remarry, for it'd be treasonous to wed another. The king character tells the queen character that she believes that now, but we often break our promises. However, the king character believes the queen character's persistence and asks that she leave so that he may sleep. He sleeps. The actors enter, and a king character and a queen character perform a silent show miming the scene of a king and queen in an embrace. The king character lies down on a bank of flowers and falls asleep. The queen character exits. Another male character enters and pours poison in the king character's ear and exits. The queen character re-enters and sees the king character is dead. She makes a passionate gesture and three or four other actors enter to carry the body of the dead king character away. The poisoner character enters and woos the queen character. She seems harsh at first, but then she accepts his love. All play within a play characters exit. Another player enters to provide the prologue. They inform the audience that this play is a tragedy and beg for the audience's patience. The king and queen characters re-enter. They have had a conversation about their decades-long marriage, the king's health, and the morality of remarriage. The queen character shares that financial advantage can be the only reason to remarry, for it'd be treasonous to wed another. The king character tells the queen character that she believes that now, but we often break our promises. However, the king character believes the queen character's persistence and asks that she leave so that he may sleep. He sleeps. Hamlet turns to Gertrude and asks how she likes the play. Gertrude replies that the lady makes too many protestations of her determination not to remarry. Yes, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Claudius asks if the play offers any satirical commentary, and Hamlet replies, no. Claudius wants to know the name of the play, and Hamlet responds, the mousetrap. Hamlet describes the plot and jests with Claudius that those of us with souls free from guilt are unaffected by the events of the play, while those with a guilty conscience wince. In the play within a play, a character called Lucianus enters. Hamlet tells everyone that this character is the nephew to the king. Ophelia jokes that Hamlet is as good as a Greek chorus. Throughout the asides, Hamlet has been making vulgar comments to Ophelia and making condescending comments about women's relationships with their husbands. 
Luckily, Ophelia finds Hamlet's comments witty in spite of their offense. In the play within a play, Lucianus speaks about his potion of magic and evil powers. Lucianus pours the poison into the king character's ear. Hamlet narrates for everyone that Lucianus poisoned the king character in the garden and that the audience will soon see how the murderer gets the love of Gonzago's wife. At this moment, Ophelia says Claudius has stood up. Polonius announces to stop the play. Claudius demands lights. All but Hamlet and Horatio exit. Hamlet is pleased with himself and celebrates the success of his playwriting skills. Horatio appears to be less enthused, but tells Hamlet that he did notice Claudius's behavior during the poison scene. Just then, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern enter. Guildenstern informs Hamlet that Claudius in his private chambers is angry. Hamlet doesn't understand why Guildenstern came to him and not a doctor with the update. Next, Guildenstern informs Hamlet that Gertrude has sent for him. Rosencrantz shares that Hamlet's behavior has been brought to her attention and she wishes to speak with him in her private chamber. Rosencrantz then expresses concern for their friendship and wishes that Hamlet would share his grief with his friends. Hamlet deflects. Just then, actors enter with recorders. Hamlet demands a recorder and asks Guildenstern to play the recorder. Guildenstern responds that he cannot play. Hamlet then disses Guildenstern by accusing Guildenstern of thinking Hamlet is easier to play than a recorder. Guildenstern has no time to respond because Polonius enters to announce Gertrude would like to speak with Hamlet now. Hamlet dismisses everyone and they all exit. Hamlet, alone on stage, now gives another soliloquy where he announces it is the witching hour and he now feels as though he can fulfill his business, business that would shock everyone. He is off to his mother's private chambers and reminds himself to speak daggers to her, but do not use any, even though he feels as if he could act upon it. Hamlet exits. Claudius, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern enter. Claudius shares with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that he doesn't like Hamlet's condition, and that the two should prepare to accompany Hamlet to England. Guildenstern and Rosencrantz agree to the job for the sake of Denmark, its subjects, and the kingdom. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern exit. Polonius enters and joins Claudius on stage. Polonius shares that Hamlet is going to speak with his mother and that he, Polonius, will hide behind the curtain to eavesdrop. Polonius dismisses himself and promises Claudius that he will call upon him before he goes to bed. Polonius exits. Claudius, left alone on stage, now speaks his own soliloquy in which he admits he has a guilty conscience. He admits that he has the oldest curse upon himself, a brother's murder. And as much as he tries, Claudius finds that he cannot pray. There is blood upon Claudius's hands, and he doesn't know if it can be washed away. And even if it could, he doesn't know what type of prayer can serve his sin. After all, Claudius has profited off of the act, the crown, his achievements, even Gertrude. And if Claudius was pardoned, could he keep everything he's gained? Claudius wonders if he even could repent. In spite of it all, Claudius forces himself to kneel and pray. Just as Claudius kneels to pray, Hamlet enters. Hamlet has decided that now is the time to do it, to kill Claudius to avenge his father. Unfortunately for Hamlet, he sees that Claudius is currently praying. Hamlet concludes that he cannot kill Claudius right now because if he does, Claudius will be cleared of his sins and go to heaven instead of hell. Instead, Hamlet will wait and kill Claudius when Claudius is in a sinful state, perhaps 
drunk or in a rage or any of the other sins Claudius partakes in. Hamlet exits. And, unluckily for Hamlet, just as he exits, Claudius states his prayer was not successful and he will not go to heaven. Claudius exits. Gertrude and Polonius enter. Polonius assures Gertrude that Hamlet will come immediately. Polonius advises Gertrude to reprimand Hamlet and tell him that his actions have been too much to tolerate. Polonius then tells her he'll hide behind the curtain. Gertrude then demands Polonius hide right away because she hears Hamlet coming. Polonius hides behind the curtain. Hamlet enters. He asks his mother what is the matter. Gertrude tells Hamlet that he has offended his father. Hamlet refutes that, no, she has offended his father. Gertrude reprimands his wicked tongue, and he talks back about her wicked tongue. Gertrude is taken aback and asks if he has forgotten that she is his mother. Hamlet responds that, would it be otherwise, she is his mother. Gertrude warns Hamlet that if he cannot speak respectfully, she'll have to confront him with the king. Hamlet then instructs his mother to sit on the bed so he can put a mirror up to her and she can see herself. Gertrude assumes Hamlet is going to kill her and cries out for help. Polonius, behind the curtain, also cries out for help. Hamlet approaches the curtain, calls the individual behind the curtain a rat, and then kills them. Hamlet thought he killed the king. However, when he uncovers the body, he discovers he killed Polonius. Hamlet curses Polonius, and then he curses Gertrude. Gertrude asks Hamlet what she has done to him to cause him to be so rude towards her. Hamlet demands she look upon two pictures. One is his father, and the other is his uncle. Hamlet compares his wonderful father to his father's counterfeit brother. Hamlet then chastises his mother and tells her that she is too old to call second marriage love. He can't figure out what would have motivated her to make the decision, for not even a mad person would make this mistake. Hamlet concludes by judging her to have no shame. Hamlet's harsh words spark a change in Gertrude. She demands he speak no more, for she has now looked into her soul and seen her shame. In spite of her proclamation, Hamlet continues to insult her and her marriage to Claudius. Suddenly, the ghost enters. Hamlet responds to the ghost, asking him to save him and guard him. Gertrude, who does not see the ghost, assumes Hamlet is mad. Hamlet continues to talk to the ghost, assuming he has come to chide Hamlet for procrastinating on fulfilling his command. The ghost clarifies that his visit is to sharpen Hamlet's purpose. In addition to revenge, the ghost demands Hamlet to intervene in his mother's mental and spiritual crisis. Hamlet then asks Gertrude how she is doing. Gertrude asks Hamlet how he is doing because she notices he is looking into nothingness and speaking to nothing. Hamlet explains to Gertrude that he is looking at him over there. Hamlet then asks the ghost to not look upon him. So Gertrude asks Hamlet who he is speaking to. Hamlet asks Gertrude if she does not see or hear anything, and Gertrude responds that she sees and hears nothing but the two of them. Hamlet delivers one last attempt to point out the ghost to Gertrude, but the ghost exits. Gertrude tells Hamlet that he is hallucinating. Hamlet explains to his mother that he has not been speaking madness. Hamlet advises his mother to confess herself to heaven, repent, and avoid future sin. Gertrude tells Hamlet that he has broken her heart. Hamlet wishes his mother good night, but hopes that, even if she is not virtuous, she would pretend to be virtuous, for it becomes easier and easier each day. Hamlet reflects that he sees himself as an agent of the gods who must kill Claudius. Gertrude asks what she is to do. Hamlet responds to allow Claudius to tempt her, and then she should reveal to Claudius that Hamlet is not in madness, 
Rather, he is mad and cunning. Gertrude agrees to help in Hamlet's plan. Hamlet then reminds Gertrude that he is going to England and shares that he will also get revenge on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Hamlet wishes Gertrude goodnight and exits, dragging Polonius offstage. Claudius, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern enter to find Gertrude sobbing. Claudius asks her what has made her cry so and where Hamlet is. Gertrude asks Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to leave, which they do. Gertrude relays to Claudius that Hamlet came in her room already crazed and in his madness heard something behind the heiress and stabbed Polonius unseen. Claudius responds that it could have been him instead of Polonius, and notes that Hamlet's freedom is a threat to everyone in Elsinore. Claudius realizes that the justice for his deed lies on himself, who should have and could have been doing more to restrain Hamlet. However, because of how much he loves Hamlet, Claudius was unable to understand what was best for Hamlet. Instead, they ignored the earlier red flags, and now Hamlet has murdered Polonius. Claudius asks where Hamlet has gone, and Gertrude responds that Hamlet has taken the body away, and even in his madness, he is still good and still feels guilt for what was done. Claudius says that he will make Hamlet get on a ship and out of Denmark as soon as dawn breaks, and he will take care of whatever consequences come about because of Polonius's death and justify what happened. He calls Guildenstern back in, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern re-enter. Claudius informs them of what has happened and instructs them to seek Hamlet out, placate him, and get the body to the chapel. They exit to do so. Claudius says to Gertrude that he will call on other advisors to inform them of how he plans to handle the situation. Hopefully, once the news of the murder reaches around the world and rumors start, Claudius's reputation will not be tainted by this. They leave as Claudius notes that his soul is uneasy. In a nearby part of the palace, Hamlet enters and announces that he has hidden Polonius's body. Offstage, he hears people calling for him as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern enter. They ask him what he has done with the body. Hamlet refuses to answer and chastises the two for their service to Claudius, saying that all the work they are doing in hope of reward may be for naught. Claudius can always take back everything he has promised these two. They do not understand and are confused by what Hamlet says. They assert that he must tell them where the body is and go with them to see Claudius. He agrees, and all three exit. Claudius enters with some attendants, who he is also instructing to go find Hamlet and Polonius's body. Claudius remarks on how dangerous it is to have Hamlet running around free, but that because Hamlet is so beloved by the Danish people, Claudius can't just have Hamlet arrested. Instead, Claudius has to send Hamlet away and intentionally delay justice for Polonius's murder. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern enter and recount how they cannot get Hamlet to admit where the body is hidden, but they've gotten Hamlet to come see Claudius. Hamlet is outside and guarded, waiting to hear what Claudius wants. Claudius orders Hamlet to be brought inside. Hamlet enters, and Claudius questions him over the whereabouts of Polonius's body. Hamlet obfuscates and dances around the question before finally sharing that the body is hidden in the lobby. Claudius sends some attendants to go find the body and tells Hamlet that for Hamlet's safety, he must be sent away. Claudius says that he has already arranged a ship to take Hamlet to England. Hamlet replies sardonically, then leaves. Claudius sends more servants after him to make sure that Hamlet gets on that ship. Left alone, Claudius prays that England, whether through love or obedience to Denmark, will act upon the royal command Claudius has sent there, to kill Hamlet. Nearby Elsinore, 
Fortinbras and his army have arrived. Fortinbras sends a captain to greet Claudius and remind Claudius that Fortinbras needs to move through Denmark on his way to Poland. Fortinbras tells his captain that if Claudius wants to meet, he will dutifully do so. Fortinbras and the army move on, leaving the captain alone. Just then, Hamlet, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern enter. Hamlet asks the captain about the army and where they are headed. The captain informs Hamlet that they are Norwegian troops marching towards Poland. They are commanded by Fortinbras, and their aim is to gain a small area of land that is more important for its name than anything else. Hamlet muses on the futility and inevitability of war. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern ask if Hamlet is ready to move along. He asks them to walk ahead, but that he will follow behind. Left alone, Hamlet reflects on his inaction in killing Claudius, compared to the actions of others, like Fortinbras and the army. He has great reason to act, yet seemingly cannot, while Fortinbras can raise an army of men to risk their lives over a small, insignificant parcel of land. He admires Fortinbras' actions while pointing out their absurdity. They are all fighting over a place that isn't even big enough to bury them all. From that time forward, the only thoughts he wants to value are those of action, and he exits. Back in Elsinore, Gertrude, Horatio, and a nameless gentleman are talking. Gertrude has been refusing to speak with Ophelia, but the gentleman informs her that Ophelia is persistent and, in her state of mind, Ophelia should be pitied. The gentleman reveals that Ophelia speaks of her father, is paranoid, and speaks in nonsense, though anyone listening can find coherence in Ophelia's seemingly incoherent statements. But the meaning they find may be more based on the hearers' minds than any true intended meaning by Ophelia. Horatio advises that it would be smart to see Ophelia, as someone with ill intent towards Claudius and Gertrude, could start to question the circumstances of Polonius's death after listening to Ophelia, and thereby cause trouble for Claudius and Gertrude. Gertrude allows Ophelia to enter. Ophelia is visibly distressed and sings of lovers and fathers. She does not answer Gertrude when Gertrude asks why she is singing. Claudius enters and asks Ophelia how she is, and she answers in metaphors. Claudius remarks that she seems to be having fantasies about Polonius. Ophelia interrupts him to chide him and resumes singing a new song, this time about a lover who convinced a woman to sleep with him and then left her. Claudius asks the others in the room how long Ophelia has been like this, as Ophelia speaks in more metaphors and exits. Claudius instructs Horatio to follow her, and Horatio does. Claudius then turns to Gertrude and opines how deep grief can poison the mind. Claudius says Ophelia's condition is clearly caused by her father's death, and, Claudius notes, sorrows and strife come in multiples. Claudius lists Polonius's death, Hamlet's removal from Denmark, and Hamlet's actions that led to his removal, the public unrest that has been caused by Polonius's death, and how Claudius and Gertrude chose to bury Polonius in secret. Claudius notes this final choice, in retrospect, was foolish. All of these things, he says, have clearly caused Ophelia to have a mental break. Claudius informs Gertrude that Laertes has come back from France in secret. Laertes, Claudius says, is looking for revenge, is suspicious of everyone, and is encountering no shortage of people who are spreading rumors about Polonius's death due to the overwhelming lack of substantial evidence. Indeed, these rumors will eventually, if they haven't already, 
put Claudius and Gertrude on a trial of public opinion. This, Claudius declares, is like death by a thousand cuts to him. A messenger enters as Claudius commands his royal guards to guard the door. The messenger delivers news that Laertes has started an insurrection against Claudius and Gertrude. According to the messenger, the common people are following Laertes and demanding to overrule the electoral body that made Claudius king. The insurrection arrives at Elsinore, and the guards are overtaken, and doors to the room are broken open. Laertes enters and bids his followers to wait outside and guard the door. Laertes demands that Claudius give him Polonius. Gertrude holds Laertes back, but Claudius tells her to let Laertes go. Laertes asks again where his father is, and Claudius simply says, dead. Gertrude insists that Claudius did not kill Polonius, but Claudius tells her to let Laertes ask all the questions he needs to. Laertes asks how Polonius died, for he will be revenged for his father, no matter the consequences in this life or the next. Nothing will prevent him. Claudius interrogates this a little further and asks, what about those who were friends of Polonius? Laertes says that he will surrender to those who were his father's friends. Claudius states that he is innocent of Laertes' father's death and grieves Polonius, which will be apparent. Just then, a noise offstage interrupts them, and Laertes commands his followers to let Ophelia come in. When Laertes sees Ophelia, he is overwhelmed at seeing her state. Ophelia sings a lament about a funeral. She then proceeds to hand out flowers to Laertes, Gertrude, and Claudius. She sings again and leaves. Laertes is distraught, and Claudius convinces him to excuse all of his followers, except for a few trusted friends. These friends, Claudius says, can judge between Laertes and Claudius if Claudius is truly guilty in Polonius's death. Claudius says if they find him guilty, he will hand over all of his riches and his kingdom to Laertes. If they find him not guilty, Claudius asks Laertes to join forces with him, and together they will revenge Polonius. Laertes says that all he wishes to know is how Polonius died and the details of his secret funeral. Claudius says he will reveal all in the trial, and, after he tells all, they can determine where blame lies. They exit together. Elsewhere, Horatio is informed of the arrival of some sailors. He welcomes them in and notes that he doesn't know who abroad would be trying to contact him except for Hamlet. The sailors enter and deliver a letter that they say comes from an ambassador that was heading for England. Horatio reads the letter, which, indeed, is from Hamlet. Hamlet asks Horatio to assist the sailors in gaining an audience with Claudius. They also have letters for him. He then describes how the ship he was on was attacked by pirates, and he was taken prisoner. Hamlet tells Horatio to make sure Claudius gets the letters, then come meet him as soon as possible. The sailors will lead Horatio to Hamlet. Oh, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are still on their way to England. When Horatio finishes reading the letter aloud, he tells the sailors that he will bring them to Claudius, and so they all exit. Back in the royal palace, Claudius and Laertes have been having their talk. Claudius says that Laertes must accept Claudius's innocence, since Hamlet killed Polonius and has been trying to kill Claudius. Laertes confirms Claudius's innocence in the murder of Polonius, but asks why Claudius didn't protect Hamlet for these crimes and only acted to protect his own interests. Claudius responds that he did it for Gertrude primarily, and secondly, 
was because of the love the common people have for Hamlet. Laertes remarks that this inaction has made him lose both a father and a sister, if Ophelia's wits do not return to her. Laertes is still bent on revenge. Claudius tells Laertes not to lose sleep over revenge plotting. Just when Claudius is about to divulge a plan, he is interrupted by the arrival of a messenger. The messenger brings the letters from Hamlet to Claudius and Gertrude. Claudius excuses the messenger and reads his letter aloud to Laertes. In it, Hamlet warns Claudius that he is coming back to Denmark and wants to see Claudius tomorrow, when, after begging Claudius's pardon, Hamlet shall tell Claudius of how and why he is back so soon. The message is unsigned. Claudius is confused by this news and tells Laertes that he knows it is from Hamlet because he recognizes the handwriting. Laertes is also baffled, but he is also excited that he doesn't have to wait long to confront Hamlet about Polonius and Ophelia. Claudius is unsure whether the letter is truthful or a trick. Claudius asks Laertes if Laertes will go along with the plan. Laertes says, sure, as long as the plan isn't making peace with Hamlet. Claudius reveals that he has designs to kill Hamlet and make it look like an accident. Laertes says he will go along with the plan if he can be the cause of Hamlet's demise. Claudius remarks that he knows there is one quality that Laertes outshines Hamlet in, and that has been talked of much since Laertes has been gone. In fact, it is the quality that Hamlet most envies in Laertes, that Laertes is good at fencing. So good, in fact, that a visiting Frenchman told tales of how Laertes was better at fencing than any person in France. And Hamlet has been wanting to fence Laertes in order to prove who is actually best. Laertes interrupts and Claudius questions if Laertes truly loved Polonius, for if Laertes truly loved his father, what would he do when Hamlet comes back? What would Laertes do to prove his love for his father? Laertes responds that he would cut Hamlet's throat in the church. Claudius responds that while murder doesn't fit the setting of a church, revenge should have no bounds. Claudius instructs Laertes that if Laertes will do this, Laertes should stay inside his private chambers. When Hamlet comes home, he will know Laertes is back, and Claudius will get some people to start talking about how great a fencer Laertes is, spread the stories the Frenchman told, and so incite Hamlet to a fencing match. Hamlet will be so driven to beat Laertes that he will not pay close attention to the foils, and Laertes can choose a foil that is actually sharp instead of blunted. Laertes agrees to do this, and shares that he has a poisonous ointment he purchased from a traveling salesperson. No one who is scratched with the ointment can escape death. Claudius has to think this idea through. After all, if the foil is poisoned and the plan doesn't succeed, both Claudius and Laertes could be implicated in a plot. Therefore, Claudius says, they need a plan B. That is, that Laertes duel Hamlet to the point that Hamlet gets thirsty and calls for a drink. Claudius will give Hamlet a special goblet that is also poisoned. Therefore, if the foil plan is foiled, they can still make sure Hamlet gets poisoned. Just then, Gertrude enters and announces that Ophelia has drowned. Laertes asks where. Gertrude describes how Ophelia was picking wildflowers and making flower crowns under a willow near the brook. She was hanging her flower crowns on the drooping boughs of the willow when one broke, and both Ophelia and her flowers fell into the river. Her clothes kept her afloat for a while, and during that time she sang old songs and wasn't distressed. 
Eventually, her clothes became waterlogged, and she was pulled underwater, and she drowned. Laertes weeps at this news and excuses himself. Claudius and Gertrude follow, and as they exit, Claudius remarks how difficult it was to cool Laertes' rage, and how Claudius hopes that this news will not incite Laertes into another fit of rage. Two clowns, a gravedigger and a second man, enter. The gravedigger asks if an unnamed she is to be buried in Christian burial when she, it's heavily implied but not confirmed, committed suicide. The second man says that the coroner said it is to be a Christian burial. The gravedigger doesn't understand how the coroner can conclude that, unless she drowned herself in her own defense, an excuse for murder. The second man then questions if the gravedigger is implying that, had she not been a gentlewoman, she wouldn't have been buried in a Christian burial. The gravedigger agrees. After macabre jokes, the second man exits. Hamlet and Horatio enter. Hamlet asks if the gravedigger, now singing as he digs, doesn't understand the sadness of his occupation. Horatio responds that doing it so much has caused him to become indifferent. The gravedigger, still singing, throws up a skull. The skull inspires Hamlet to contemplate the transition from life to death. In death, even a person of great importance can be reduced to bones that a gravedigger might play with. Hamlet decides to ask the gravedigger whose grave he is digging. Being one of Shakespeare's clowns, the gravedigger answers Hamlet's question indirectly through wordplay. But even though the gravedigger frustrates Hamlet, Hamlet asks him how long he has been in the profession. The gravedigger responds that he has been in this line of work since the day the late King Hamlet overtook Fortinbras and the day young Hamlet was born. Apparently, word around Denmark is that young Hamlet has gone mad and is being sent off to England. Their attention is brought to a skull, and Hamlet asks whose skull it was. Apparently, the gravedigger knew this man, Yorick the King's Jester. You may know this jester, not in the script, but often in performance, where Hamlet holds up the skull and looks at it. Hamlet knew this jester, and recounts the laughs and the fun that was had when Yorick was alive. All of this leads Hamlet to wonder if the great rulers of time, Alexander and Caesar, now dead, buried, and returned to earth, are just material used for something mundane, like a cask or barrel stopper. Just then, Claudius, Gertrude, Laertes, other lords, and a priest enter following a funeral procession. Hamlet wonders who they follow. Hamlet notices a reduction in the burial rites. Hamlet and Horatio stop to watch. Then, Laertes asks if there will be no more ceremony? Like Hamlet, he is surprised by the truncated rites. The priest responds that the church has performed all that they are authorized to do, given the circumstances. Laertes, not happy about the rites, at least tells the priest that his sister will become an angel when he is in hell. Hamlet, in an aside to Horatio, realizes that Ophelia is the corpse they followed. Gertrude speaks sweet words over Ophelia's grave, specifically wishing Ophelia could have been Hamlet's wife. Laertes, overcome with grief, jumps into the grave to embrace her one last time. Just then, Hamlet steps forward and peacocks about his grief over Ophelia's death. Laertes leaps out of the grave and curses Hamlet. Hamlet commands Laertes to release his grip from Hamlet's neck. The king demands attendants break up Hamlet and Laertes. Hamlet then challenges Laertes to a fight to prove his love for Ophelia was greater than Laertes's. 
After dialogue that implies Laertes and Hamlet have been in a physical altercation, Hamlet announces that, while the fighting has been stopped for the moment, it isn't over. All exit. Hamlet and Horatio enter in the middle of conversation. Hamlet asks Horatio if he remembers everything, and Horatio says, of course he does. Hamlet then repeats for Horatio, but the first time for the audience, the action of the revenge plan on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Hamlet says that he sneaked around in their papers and found a command from the king to England that instructed Hamlet to be killed. Hamlet hands the letter to a skeptical Horatio to read. In response, Hamlet wrote a new letter from the king to England instructing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to be killed. Luckily, Hamlet had his father's seal, so it looked a fish. Now, Hamlet can get back to his obligation, killing the villainous Claudius. Just then, Osric, a courtier, enters. Throughout this scene, Hamlet and Horatio poke fun at the naive Osric, but Osric doesn't realize he's being made fun of. Osric welcomes Hamlet back to Denmark with a message from the king. Apparently, the king has placed a wager on Hamlet's head. Following this news, Osric adds that the king has also placed a bet on a first-to-three-hits duel between Hamlet and, drumroll please, Laertes, who Osric emphatically points out is a gentleman and excellent with his weapon. Hamlet asks what would happen if he said no. Osric replies that Hamlet will be put on trial. Hamlet decides that he will go to the halls for the fight. Hamlet asks that swords be prepared. Hamlet is certain he will win, and if he can't, he will only gain shame. Osric exits to deliver the acceptance. Hamlet and Horatio make fun of Osric behind his back until a lord enters to deliver a message that Osric has called to know if Hamlet is ready to play with Laertes, or if he needs more time. Hamlet responds that if the king is ready, he, Hamlet, is ready. The lord announces that Claudius and Gertrude are on their way to the hall. The lord also delivers Gertrude's message to Hamlet that he shows courtesy toward Laertes. Hamlet agrees. The lord exits. Horatio then tells Hamlet that he thinks Hamlet will lose the fight. Hamlet does not agree. While Laertes was away, Hamlet has constantly been practicing. Hamlet also discloses to Horatio that something has been bothering him. But it's no matter. It's a feeling that affects women's hearts. Horatio then advises Hamlet that, if something is wrong, Horatio will say Hamlet is not well at the moment. Hamlet decries that he is prepared to die and demands that Horatio leave it alone. With Hamlet and Horatio still on stage, a table is prepared. Trumpets and drums sound. Officers with cushions, swords, and daggers enter. Claudius, Gertrude, Laertes, Osric, and the rest of the court enter. Claudius calls to Hamlet and puts Hamlet's hand in Laertes's. Hamlet then apologizes to Laertes for doing him wrong and requests that Laertes pardon Hamlet, for Hamlet has been behaving out of a madness. Hamlet would never harm Laertes. All of it was the madness. Hamlet commiserates that the madness is also Hamlet's enemy. Laertes responds that, as far as his natural feelings are concerned, he is satisfied with seeking revenge and will not seek reconcilement until he sees an example of peace that convinces him to preserve his reputation from injury. As far as Hamlet's feelings, he will accept Hamlet's love and not wrong it. Hamlet agrees, they shall play with no ill feelings. Laertes requests his sword, 
Hamlet pokes fun at Laertes, so Claudius demands Osric give both fighters their swords. As part of the plan, Laertes says that he does not like the sword Osric provided and asks for a lighter one. In addition, Claudius requests the stoops of wine be placed on a table. Claudius reminds everyone of the rules and drinks to Hamlet's health. Trumpets blare. The game begins. Hamlet and Laertes play. Hamlet gets a hit on Laertes. Claudius offers Hamlet a celebratory cup of wine to drink, but Hamlet declines. The cup of wine is left on the table. Hamlet and Laertes continue to play. Hamlet then gets a second hit on Laertes. Gertrude, celebrating her son, reaches for the cup of wine on the table. Claudius tells her not to drink, but she won't be told no. There is no stage direction, but from the dialogue, Gertrude drinks. Hamlet declines another drink. Gertrude then wipes her son's face. In the meantime, Laertes tells Claudius that he wants to hit Hamlet now. Claudius does not think it wise. Hamlet then eggs on Laertes. They continue to play. In the scuffling, and with some great fencing choreography, Hamlet and Laertes change swords. Claudius demands Hamlet and Laertes be parted because they are both angry. Just then, Gertrude falls. Horatio notes that Hamlet and Laertes have both been hit, and Laertes admits he has been killed with his own trap. Hamlet asks about the queen, but the king deflects. Gertrude, in her dying breath, tells Hamlet that the drink is poisoned. She dies. Hamlet demands the doors be locked so any perpetrator cannot escape. Osric exits. Laertes then admits to Hamlet that he, Hamlet, has also been slain, and no medicine can help him. Within this foul trick, Laertes himself has also been poisoned and will die. Laertes spills the tea and shares that Claudius is to be blamed. This gives Hamlet all the momentum he needs and, finally, hurts the king. Claudius is not killed, so we can deduce from the text that Hamlet forces Claudius to drink the poisoned wine. Claudius dies. Now Laertes sees that the death of both his father, Polonius, and Hamlet's father were not Hamlet's fault nor his own. Laertes forgives Hamlet and dies. Lastly, Hamlet, knowing his time is to come, asks Horatio, who still lives, to report an accurate account of Hamlet's experiences and the reason for his actions. Hamlet asks for a cup of wine and, we can deduce from the text, drinks the poison. There is the sound of a march from afar. Osric enters. Osric announces that young Fortinbras and his army is the cause of the noise. Hamlet continues explaining to Horatio that he is dying and needs Horatio to explain his story to young Fortinbras. Now, Hamlet dies. Young Fortinbras, his train of knights, and the ambassadors enter. Fortinbras asks for an explanation of the scene of this massacre. He wants to know what has happened that has caused so many to be killed. In addition to the dead bodies on the floor, the ambassador delivers the news that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Horatio tells Fortinbras that he will explain to him the cause of this gruesome scene. Fortinbras looks forward to the tale because he has business in Denmark. Horatio explains that he will speak on behalf of Hamlet. Fortinbras demands that they have a ceremonial exit with Hamlet, for he was like a soldier to the stage, and if he had lived, would have proved most royal. Fortinbras demands the bodies be picked up and removed, and the soldiers shoot their guns in honor of Hamlet.
And that's Hamlet. Thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Richard II, Act Two, Scene Two, said by York. Comforts in heaven, and we are on the earth where nothing lives but crosses, cares, and grief.